The Solid 7 Podcast is a proud affiliate of GORUCK. GORUCK designs and builds the toughest gear on the planet, tested and proven at thousands of GORUCK events held all over the world and led by current and former Special Forces combat veterans. The GORUCK brand stands for building better Americans, the Special Forces way of life, and a life-or-death approach to building the world's toughest gear. Visit Solid7Podcast.com and click on the GORUCK link to learn more about their gear and events and a portion of every purchase and every event registration you make will go to support us here at the Solid 7 Podcast. Hello, world, and welcome back to a Solid 7 Podcast, a better-than-average podcast, if I do say so myself. This, of course is not a show about nothing, but it's also not a show about any one thing. Each week, I like to get together with a guest, talk about whatever is going on in the world that interests us. And this week, I'm happy to welcome Mr. Dan Zayner to the podcast. Welcome, sir. Hey, good to see you, man. Yeah, this is definitely a solid seven. As uh, It kind of reminds me of uh, yeah, news from Lake Wobegon, right? <laughs> Where all the kids are above average. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all yes. the men are handsome. All the women are strong. All the, you know... Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's the MO these days, right? Everybody's special. So, <laughs> but uh, now I feel like you got to be at least a little impressed that I pronounced your last name correctly. That took some, yeah. uh, some legitimate online stalking to manage that. Yes. The few, the proud, the people who can pronounce my name yeah. correctly the first time. Well done. <laughs> so, well, uh, Dan, regular listeners will know that this is my absolute favorite guest situation. Uh, when I have, absolutely freaking no clue who you are or what you're about and we just go for it uh that's my kind of podcast so right on i'm the i'm the ultimate gray yeah. man <laughs> yeah the uh the one and only tidbit of information i have coming in we had we've had one brief phone conversation uh and this all started with a, a quick message from the one and only emily mccarthy uh from go ruck who's of course a, a great friend of the podcast here and said, you guys should talk. And when Emily speaks, we listen. And so, we listen. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, here we sit. Now, I, I let you know a little bit off air. Uh, you know, a better podcast host would have done this better. But we do, of course, this came together very, very fast. And uh, we do have a podcast tradition here that I didn't fully fill you in on in advance. Uh, and that is we are always fueled by Jocko Go. So I've got a cold one here that I'm going to crack and toast in your honor and uh, then we'll we'll make it right by you on, on the back end. We'll make sure you get some uh, clean American-made fuel. But I'm going to crack open a I pink. I will toast you with this wonderful mug that my wife gave me for Christmas that is a hand warmer because it's cold over here. And it's got some Mandalorian black tea in it. <laughs> nice. I like it. Well, cheers, sir. Cheers. So I, I'm not, uh, like, I'm not being coy. Uh, we haven't met. We've barely talked. Um, the conversation we had was very brief, uh, but from that and from Emily's recommendation, I, I could tell you were you were right up the podcast alley. So I, I did what everyone does when you don't know anything about somebody these days, and I properly internet stalked you. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try an internet stalking introduction here. And I'm going to have you fill in the gaps, and then we'll we'll back up the storyline and see what got you to where you're at right now. Okay, sounds good. So, uh, founder of Anthem of the of the Adventurer, which includes a blog, a podcast. Um, I think you're doing like some. Uh, it feels 
hopefully this isn't too derivative, put it this way, but uh, some life coaching, something along that lines, you might have a cooler sounding term for it. Uh, and working on a book as well, uh, because, yep. hey, why not? You don't have much going on. Uh, so the internet I didn't have enough irons and enough fires. <laughs> <laughs> the internet would have us believe um, that. Uh, well, well, I'll just I'll read your bio as it was offered to me on your own website. When Dan isn't diving in the dark with Navy SEALs, that's going to need some explanation. Rucking through the cold with a team carrying logs or building something in his shop, he's serving his wife and three kids in the ways that only he can. In now your website's out of date. Says Lafayette, Indiana here. Oh, and, uh, yeah. There's been a move. There's <laughs> been a move. Often I update my website. Not <laughs> every not day. In the past six months. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every day he's showing others how to have an epic, adventurous life and love the journey with some powerful tools. That's powerful tours, tools, not power tools. This isn't a home improvement situation. He started. Although, the- <laughs> you know, I have a I have a big fan of power tools. Aren't we all, sir? <laughs> and we'll talk about whether or not you like the right brand at some point here in the podcast. But uh, he started the anthem of the adventurer out of a deep seated need for adventure in his life and to share that journey with other men before joining SEAL team leaders, where he serves as the head coach in the leadership and teams class. Dan has worked with research centers at Purdue University for both the National Science Foundation and NASA. 100% we're going to talk about that, helping make (laughs) our society more resilient to all the natural hazards nature throws at us on Earth, as well as on the moon and Mars. Prior to this, he has worked as a validation engineer for Caterpillar. It would be better if it was John Deere. We're going to let that slide. A manufacturing engineer for Subaru. There are going to be Subaru jokes throughout the course of the podcast and a fluid, there should be. <laughs> and a fluid systems engineer for electric boat, cleverly named working on nuclear submarine design. Dan holds a bachelor of science. That's a BS ladies and gentlemen in mechanical engineering from the university of Illinois. The S is silent people, but clearly doesn't do much ILL. <laughs> for sure. Doesn't do much engineering these days. So what, what did the bio miss? What else you got going on? Yeah. Well, the, my, my own bio missed the fact that I've now moved to Oregon. So we're calling in from my three season room here in lovely sunny for once, <laughs> Eugene, Oregon. <laughs> uh yeah we moved here actually six months ago on next monday which is it both seems like yesterday and also six years ago because so much has happened um yeah the um the the diving in the dark with the navy seals thing (laughs) that actually has only happened once so far but it was so awesome. Um, so the the guy that I work uh, work with at SEAL Team Leaders, his name is Larry Yatch. He's the guy who gave me this challenge coin that I keep on my desk as a reminder nice. that I've always got a good teammate to watch my six. Um, and that I have a commitment to do the same. Um, so he was a, a, a lieutenant in SEAL Team 3 for 10 years. And uh, if... Your listeners follow history pretty well. Uh, SEAL Team 3 being uh, in charge of Middle East operations, him having served from 1998 to 2008, he was pretty busy uh, over there. Anyway, um, a few years ago, he was living with his wife and kids in um, the east coast of Florida, and I went to go visit him while I was doing some work for, for Purdue. 
driving between Gainesville and Miami like a crazy person. Of course. Um, and we went and had dinner. It was awesome. And then he's like, hey, you want to go for a dive after dinner? I'm like, in the dark? He's like, yeah, why not? <laughs> like, sure. Yeah. He's And he's like, yeah, we're going to hunt for lobster. Like, okay, because that's what we do. So uh, I, I didn't get any pictures, no video. Like, there's no evidence that this happened but, except for in our brains. But, um, yeah, we suited up in uh, snorkeling gear. And got a couple of flashlights and a little tickle stick and a and a net for the lobsters and a dive flag and just walked off the beach and into the dark water of the Atlantic and uh, saw um, first off a master human being in the water. Just I mean he swims like a jellyfish. Like right. he spends almost no energy at all. And I'm like I, I mean I was in swim team middle school and high school. Like I I a strong swimmer for an average person, but I was like, oh, I can't keep up. And then, you know, I could stay down underwater for maybe 30, 40 seconds. And he's underneath there for like two and a half minutes. Um, <laughs> it's just incredible to watch him. And then we saw some fish. We saw a squid in the dark, uh, a bunch of beach chairs and tires that had gotten washed off the beach from various storms and things. And no lobsters. Cause apparently they go out of their homes at night to eat. Like that's what they do. But um, yeah, it was it was amazing, and I can I can legitimately say I have gone on a night dive with a Navy SEAL. It yeah, was I so feel, cool. I feel like that's one of those situations in life where if it presents itself to you, you must say yes. A SEAL says, "Oh yeah, you want to go for a swim anywhere? Uh, you want to go hang out in the hot tub?" That one, a pause to think about your life decisions. But other than that, a Navy SEAL invites you on a dive. You say yes. You figure. Worry about the rest later. Can't swim? Figure it out. Worry about the rest later. Funnily enough. The um, definition of adventure that I use actually came up when the same Navy SEAL and I were on a Zoom call. He, while he was in a hot tub, me, while I was at my uh, dining room table. But like we came up with, so his big thing and mine as well is precise language. Like right. that's how we coordinate action well. Uh, that's what makes humans different from my cat here. We can language. Right. We can have a, a word that means pen. But that can mean writing utensil or weapon if I stab you with it. But it's the same word for pen. Right. Um, so we came up with, after a long discussion and distillation, that adventure is actually an, an experience where you learn by persevering into the unknown and you find fulfillment. That's solid. I like it. Yeah. Now, before we, because I, I want to wind it all the way back and, and get the backstory here. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Uh, uh, before we move on, because listeners of this podcast are pretty familiar with it, with that time period in SEAL Team 3, what task mm -hmm. unit was he on? Do you know? That is a good question. I'm not sure if I've just never asked or if he's never told me or if I, he wasn't allowed to say, but I don't yeah. know. Because <laughs> there would have been, based on that time frame, there would have been overlap with when Jocko and Leif and a lot of the other echelon front crew were there because yeah. that overlaps the yeah. battle or Ramadi, but Jocko was of course yeah. over task unit bruiser. Yeah. So he, um, he went to the Naval Academy with Leif though. And actually uh, Leif took over um, his platoon when he moved on to essentially create the seals version of the CIA. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, um, I'm gonna need. Larry. Yeah, so he, I have asked him though if he if he personally knows Jock when he doesn't. Um, so, um, but but he and Leif go way back. Right on, man. Well, uh, what's uh, also if you're familiar with uh, if you've never heard of Eric Davis, who I think I introduced you to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he and Eric Davis were on the uh, on a team together. Eric being later the sniper instructor that uh, taught Chris Kyle and Marcus Luttrell. Very cool. Yeah, it's it's amazing the guys that overlapped there during during GWAT mm -hmm. and uh, some cool stories for sure. Uh, so what? Let's uh, with stories. Let's let's get into your story. What's what's the origin story? Obviously, uh, you're not home anymore unless you returned home to Oregon. So uh, where yeah. where's where's OG home? Yeah, OG home is uh, is uh, the the cold Northlands of Minnesota, uh, the Twin Cities. Um, was was born there, stayed and uh, lived there until I was about twelve. Uh, midway through sixth grade, uh, our family up and moved to central Illinois, Peoria, home of Caterpillar. Hence, the late the later return to Caterpillar is kind of somewhat related to that. But, now we'll uh, have to we'll have, yeah. to we'll have to take a, a small world pause here. Uh, I'm originally from Illinois. Um, now I was born in in Sterling, which is around Dixon. If you're familiar with Dixon, but I am. Yeah, all, all of my extended family is from either the Quad Cities or Cuba, which most people haven't heard of. It's an actual town in Illinois, but Cuba. I have heard of that. Yeah. Mo you're the first person I've ever met in the wild that had heard of Cuba, but I still have family uh, in like Canton and around Peoria. And one of my uncles is actually, oh. one of my uncles is retired from Cat. The whole other side of the family from the Quad Cities, they're all re retired from John Deere. Uh, yeah. Okay. So you actually know where, where my second hometown is, Washington. It's on the east okay. side of Peoria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not too often you can you can bond with somebody over central Illinois locales. Yeah, I actually so I met a guy at a local business networking group here in Eugene who's from um, the Galesburg area. I okay. Like, oh yeah, what? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. So uh, yeah, small world. Yeah, that part of Illinois very very special. If you think you know Illinois, you probably only know about Chicago and Springfield, but yeah. uh, the rest the of the real it, Illinois yeah. is south of I eighty. Yeah, Chicago should be its own state. Though I love my wife dearly, she's from Chicago suburbs. Um, she she shouldn't be able to call herself an Illinois. <laughs> no, it's it's a it's a different it's a different thing. So some time in Central Illinois. Mm hmm. And then uh, yeah, went went to the University of Illinois like everybody else in my family did. Uh, my both my parents, my sister, cousins, uh, grandparents. I mean, I've we've got like the original fundraising programs for the building of Memorial Stadium from 1926. Wow. Um, yeah. So, uh, we go way back at, at U of I and, uh, I wanted to be an engineer cause I watched hunt for Red October too much as a kid. Um, I, I wanted to be in the submarine in industry ever since probably early high school when I, when I first, uh, saw the movie and then read the book three times. Nice. Interesting. <laughs> but specifically the engineering side, you weren't like, uh, Let's go. Let's go sign up for the Navy. I hear it's a great way to no, see the world. There was there was a, there was some pretty big um, pretty big breaks put on that with uh, with the parental units about getting into the military itself. I'm like, okay, I'll just be military adjacent. <laughs> so fair. yeah, fair it worked enough. Out, uh, worked out pretty well, and and yeah, I said I mean, <laughs> every chance I got in high school and college, I wrote a paper about submarines, like U.S. history, economics. European history, like I think I wrote probably four papers about oh, submarines. Wow. One of which about the economic impact of the company I would go work for on the on the local economy. It was really cool. Um, yeah. So knock out the degree there. Uh, yep. 
where are you off to? Yeah, so uh, met my wife in marching band. Uh, we both played trombone. Um, the marching Illini are the, the best band in the land, um, and I will disagree heartily with anybody who says any different. Uh, there are other great marching bands out there, but the marching Illini is the best. Um, and out of the 42 members of the trombone section there, we are one of six marriages to come out of our time in in the uh, marching line. There's a lot of jokes um, I'm going to pass on there. Oh, well, just a yeah, lot of there's, jokes. There's, it's, it's, it is a target-rich environment there yeah. for, for jokes and puns, for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, had a great time in, in marching band. Got to go to the Rose Bowl um, when, uh, when Illinois played against USC and got the ever-loving stuffing kicked out of them. But the band won. The band won. That's all that matters. That's why people Bought really go. To, yeah, that's why people go to the games. Yeah, yeah. We got. To, I get to play Stairway to Heaven in front of ninety thousand people and who knows how many millions on TV on New Year's Day. I mean, amazing. Yeah. Um. So graduated from engineering school with good enough grades to get an engineering degree, but not much else. <laughs> um. I didn't have grad school on my mind. Uh. Like like my folks. God bless them. Master's degree was all for them, but uh, I, I had had enough of school by then and wanted to get on with things. Um, and yeah, I got a job at Electric Boat and um, <laughs> got married right after we graduated, like a week after I graduated from, from college and took my new bride and our newly gifted to us minivan from my parents with all our stuff in it and drove to Connecticut. Um, and... I think by now she's forgiven me for that. <laughs> Taking Dude. her away from everyone and everything she's ever known uh, now, to a is, place that neither of us had ever been. Is she a Midwesterner too? Yes. She's from Chicago. Born and oh, raised. yeah. No, yes. You said that. Yep. So kind of a Midwesterner. Kind of. Yes. Yes. But <laughs> when the Midwest is what you're used to, uh, New England, boy, that's a tough transition. It is a very tough transition, but... Uh, it was like the the first big adventure for I mean for us as a as a married couple it was really a, a good crucible for us to walk through together because we had no other option than to do it together. We had nobody there that we knew except for some of my parents' friends from college. We didn't really know them. Right. Um, we had nobody that we knew. We had my job, and she had to find one. Um, and so we had no other option but to grow really fast really close um and really deep and and that's what we did and we've been married for for 13 years now and and uh, i i don't say this lightly we are more connected and more in love now than we were when we first got married and i know a lot not a lot of people can say that yeah um and it's because we've done the work (laughs) yeah but it's not uh you when you get married it's not you know just in in love it's it's not just uh butterflies and puppy dog guys every day after that no it sure isn't i mean goodness like uh and cats for us i'm more of a dog person but uh have acquiesced to the felines one of which is laying in front of me enjoying a sunbeam on my desk <laughs> um but uh yeah we've we transitioned from you know the, the newlywed life to okay what are we what are we gonna do with ourselves um and we we just started exploring like neither of us had never had ever been to uh, New England. Um, so we would go around and go to all these historic little towns, go to the submarine museum and I'd nerd out and she would tolerate it. Um, and, uh, go out to music festivals. And we both love music. She's, uh, got a master's degree in music education. 
Uh, so we'd go to Tanglewood up in Massachusetts and listen to concerts on the lawn and um, just go exploring. And um, after after a few years, um, we got into a pattern where a lot of people get to where, you know, wake up the same time, go to the same place, do the same thing, come home, and then look at our beautiful house that we had bought and go, well, the only thing we can afford to do right now is work on the house or watch Netflix. <laughs> we had we had basically priced ourselves out of adventures and uh, like just got so busy that we got stuck up on our own stuff. And um, I know for myself, I can't speak for Tracy, um, I I died a bit those years and and not all in healthy ways. Um, I got dove deep into you know video games and other less than helpful behaviors that us guys tend to do and didn't pay attention enough to her heart, frankly, uh, as well as my own. Um, so thankfully, we uh, she got pregnant and we had a, a decision to make. Uh, of are we going to raise a New Englander or are we going to move back to the Midwest and, and grow up near our families? Cause we both highly value uh, family connection and being, and growing up, having our kids grow up knowing their cousins and grandparents and things like that. And, and vice versa. And so after a ton of, ton of prayer and discernment, um, we decided to, to make the move. And I, I gave up my dream job to, prioritize that family connection. And so once again, we moved halfway across the country to Indiana, where um, I had run across the Subaru plant as I was at Purdue for a hydraulics conference and thought, well, if I ever need to move back to the Midwest, maybe I can apply for a job there. <laughs> and lo and behold, I did. And uh, yeah, we, uh, we moved into Lafayette again, not knowing anybody, but being only three hour drive away from our yeah. families helped a bit. Um, and started over now with a newborn, which adds a whole layer of complexity to everything, as anyone listening who has kids will know. Um, and it was a couple years after that where um, I wasn't super happy, again, like not super happy with how I was showing up as a, as a man and had been following the Art of Manliness blog for a while, trying yeah. to get better, and I was meeting with accountability partners and things. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I love Brett McKay so much. His man, content's I, he's, so he's fantastic. So good. I, it um, comes up on the podcast at least, I don't know, once every seven, eight, nine, ten weeks. I recommend that everyone go and read yeah. his blog series on Systems of Honor. Uh, and I recommend mm. that again now, along with all the rest of yes. his content. But uh, yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. He had a huge impact on me. Um, and I remember... Um, a little while later is after I had transitioned from Subaru to Caterpillar, basically finding out it was just not a, just not a good cultural fit. Um, I was going to, now do they, they do they issue the coexist bumper sticker at orientation when you start there? Do <laughs> no, those no. only come with the vehicles? Those uh, only come if you get the vehicle in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. Um, yeah. The, uh, the, the, the people at, at SIA, so Subaru of Indiana automotive, it used to be a, a joint venture between Subaru and Isuzu, hence the I. It was like Subaru Isuzu Automotive back in the day. Anyway, history lesson there to <laughs> for another time. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the people there are great. Like they've built quality cars ever since I've been buying my own cars. We've owned a Subaru of one flavor or another. 
except for a very brief period um, where we had a Land Rover and a Forerunner. Um, but um, yeah, they're great cars built by great people on a shoestring budget. Like, um, yeah, we don't need to go any deeper than that. But they they have a very good way of uh, of that old Teddy Roosevelt saying of do the best you can with what you have, where you are, yeah. they do really well at that. Right. Um, and build world-class vehicles with um, mostly world-class people, uh, who I can't say enough good things about. Um, and um, we didn't fit well together culturally. Like, I value highly time with my family and being there for the, for the big milestone, for milestones big and small. Right. Um, and as a manufacturing engineer, your job is to not be around your family. It's to be working when the line is down, which is weekends and holidays, all of them. Yeah. And that just didn't work for yeah. me for that season of it's life. Tough. And I, and, but it taught, it taught me a couple lessons of like with people I knew, I saw a version of myself a few years in the future where I was on my second marriage and didn't know my kids and I was missing my kids for a soccer game for some pointless maintenance project i'm like this is not a pattern that's healthy like there's only one first soccer game yeah like i can understand missing a game here and there that's gonna happen that's life but missing the first one is a big deal yeah that's a really big deal so yeah from from there i i kind of made a promise to myself that i would do my best to be there when it mattered and and to be the kind of man who always prioritizes that that relationship with my kids and with my wife to just to be there for those moments or have a really good reason why I'm why I'm not yeah so that leads you to where after that then so that led me to caterpillar yeah so I I quit before they fired me to be honest <laughs> um <laughs> um so yeah, left, left, left a Caterpillar. I was there for a couple of years as a validation engineer in their large engine uh, division. So think backup generators for places like hospitals and Facebook and engines that power things like gigantic mining trucks and uh, not oil tankers, smaller vessels than that, uh, Coast Guard cutters. Uh, actually, the diesel backup generations for, generator for submarines. Um, and uh, while I was there, I clearly couldn't get away from the submarine thing. So I actually joined and volunteered as uh, a member of the USS Indiana Commissioning Committee, uh, which I'll pull something down off my shelf here to show you from video. Um, got this uh, honorary plank owner oh, plaque nice. for the USS Indiana. That's awesome. 789 there. Um, yeah, and actually got to see the engine for that ship roll down the line. It's so cool. Um, yeah, so I was there for a couple of years, and then uh, Caterpillar's uh, engine business there is heavily dependent on the oil and gas market. And in 2016, if you remember your history, the oil and gas market wasn't doing so great. Um, and many of those engines were used in hydraulic fracking, which was going... Yeah. And with it, they jettisoned a lot of their engineering force, of which I was a member. So uh, got laid off and landed at, at Purdue, boiler up. Um which I still work for now part-time and, and I'm just honored to be a part of a team doing some really important stuff. Um, it's a, uh, a natural hazards research infrastructure. So basically what that means is our tax dollars 
part of which go to the National Science Foundation to do amazingly awesome fundamental science. A piece of that goes to places like these massive test facilities across the country at universities that um, shake buildings and blow things apart with hurricane force winds and rain and uh, study the effect of gigantic waves on structures and simulate really complex scenarios of the intersection of very powerful natural forces and the built environment. So, yeah, so I work with these uh, big test facilities all over the country, and that the NSF basically pays to keep those facilities open and low cost for uh, researchers across the country to bring in their things they would like to test and bring their team. And that's the only thing they have to pay for. They don't have to pay for the operations, the maintenance, all the other stuff, or build a huge facility themselves yeah. to test it. So we can actually tackle complex problems like what happens when the Cascadia subduction zone creates a massive 40-foot wall of water that's going to hit the entire Pacific Northwest coast and a magnitude 9 earthquake at the same time in the not-too-distant future. Yeah. What do we do about that? We are answering those questions. What? I mean, what, and, what do we do about that? <laughs> you know, what happened? Yeah. So one thing is we design elevated structures for tsunami evacuation in a way that is they're built out of sustainable materials and they're seismically... Uh, resilient, and you can put them up just about anywhere in places like Seattle and Portland. Uh, we're also looking at how to treat the soil in places like the Port of Portland, which has a tendency to do what's called uh, a liquefaction. So imagine um, you ever play with that that stuff, ublek, oh, yeah. like uh, cornstarch and water. Yeah. So imagine. Soil is kind of like that in certain places where when it's when you shake it, it liquefies. It becomes a, it becomes a liquid. All right. the water pushes the soil particles apart. And if you have things like, say, petrochemical storage tanks on top of those, they sink into the ground, which is a very bad thing. Yeah, it's a problem. And so um, there's some researchers who are looking at ways to treat the soil so that doesn't happen. Um, it, it's mind-blowingly cool. Um, and we've got another team actually down at the University of California, San Diego, right now, finishing up uh, installing instruments on a 10-story tall building that is all built out of um, it's called mass timber. So different ways of putting big pieces of wood together um, in a way that is seismically resilient. And they built a 10-story building, and they're putting all sorts of sensors and, and fancy things on it to understand how it will actually perform in a magnitude nine earthquake, they have a shake table that can shake 10 million pounds of stuff at full scale. How? <laughs> really big hydraulic <laughs> actuators, like stupidly huge hydraulic actuators. So um, let's let's pretend this is our, our plate for the shake table here. So you have, you'd have a building sitting on top of it, and then you have an actuator that can move it left and right, fore aft, and twist. So they've got a number of actuators that can do that very quickly. Um, like, I don't know how nerdy you want me to get on this, but like the the like a normal hydraulic supply line for something like a a, a tractor or something like that. It's like maybe an inch in day, right? And the supply line for this thing is eleven inches in diameter at three thousand psi. It's a phenomenal amount of oil moving through that thing very quickly. Um, and that means 
they can actually put a literal building on there and shake it with the actual ground motions from actual earthquakes that were measured, like the Northridge earthquake from uh, 1989, uh, which was the, the one in San Francisco during the World Series. The worst earthquake in U.S. recorded history, uh, or modern history anyway. And so they feed the actual measurements of the ground motion in from that so to see if this building will be able to take it. Yeah, it's pretty wacky. Yeah, that's it's tough to wrap your mind around. I'm saying, I mean, they're building. Yeah, they're, you, I'd say they're building a giant labyrinth game table, but that's still not enough axes because it's just pan tilt and labyrinth, yeah. and you're actually moving this thing mm -hmm. back and forth on the flat plane as well. Mm -hmm. And to yeah. To build, I mean, for the, the lines and the equipment serving it, not just to operate at those kinds of pressures, like 3,000 PSI is insane, but it's got to be cavitating to get those motions. So like once upon a time uh, in a past life, I worked for what was kindly referred to as the lines division, uh, but it's water mm -hmm. and sewer for a small municipality. And one of the things you had to learn about was water hammer. Like if you had water mm -hmm. flowing through a water main and you close a valve too quick, Basically, that water is going to bounce off that valve wall backwards, and all that energy is going to find a weak spot somewhere in that main. And you guys are doing that in the lines on this thing intentionally. Yeah. So one <laughs> of the things that you have in a, in a hydraulic system like that are accumulators. So think of it like a capacitor in an electrical system, but hydraulic pressure. So um, they have a huge supply tank of oil and then these accumulators that essentially keep it all pressurized all the time so that you don't get water hammer, you don't get cavitation. Cavitation is an extreme no-no at, at 3,000 PSI. Yeah, that, so they have I would think so. <laughs> things, and the way they build the valves, uh, and the way they build all the, all the fittings and everything else makes it so that um, you don't get any air in the system at all, so you can't, you can't cavitate. And they're doing all this with a wood structure. Yeah. So um, I sent you, I put you a link in the chat there in Zoom. You can put it in the show notes. It's public information. It's super awesome. Yeah. There's actually a live stream of the construction at UC San Diego right now. So you can see the building. Um, and what's cool about it, um, it's not just like a stick built structure like your house or, or something like that. They're using really large panels of if you imagine, so plywood, how it's normally constructed, is thin sheets of wood glued together at different angles right. for each layer. Um, one of the technologies that they're using um, is called cross-laminated timber. So it's like plywood, but made out of two-by-sixes or two-by-fours. So you have two-by-fours glued together perpendicular to each other in each layer, and then you make a big panel out of it, and you can cut whatever pattern you want on a giant uh, CNC machine, and then you stick it on your building. So what they've done is they use various technologies like that. They've got a bunch of different ones. Um, but they have four walls that are made out of that cross-laminated timber, um, and they rock as the building is under load. So the, the walls are built and attached such that um, they allow the building to flex back and forth when it's shaking and then come back to equilibrium with minimal damage. And they can do that cost-effectively in comparison to traditional building methods and materials? Oh, well, think about it in terms of the cost to rebuild a building like that. Yeah. So if you've got a 10-story apartment building, right? Um, if you build it, uh, one, one of the ways to, to build it uh, seismically resilient would be uh, you could do reinforced concrete structure with isolation mounts at the bottom. That's, that's a typical building method. 
However, concrete takes time to cure. Concrete takes a lot of time to construct um, on site. A building like this, you can basically put it together like Legos. Uh, you can construct all the panels at a shop off site and construct it very quickly and cost effectively. And wood is a very sustainable building material. So it's um, uh, much less impact on the environment. And also um, us as people, our brains and the way we are wired really love being around natural materials like wood. And so it's good for the people occupying it uh, down the road, as well as uh, you know, the, the, the construction benefits and the, and the resilience benefits. Is that is that strength and, and resilience and kind of that flexibility are the benefits to that kind of isolated to the forces you would see from an earthquake? Or would there be benefits in areas that are, say, hurricane prone? Would it show well, similar so resilience to that kind of stressor? Really, yeah, so that's the really awesome thing about the network that we're in is we have both hurricane testing facilities as well as earthquake and tsunami and coastal erosion and we combine them frequently. Um, so yeah, there there are um, uh, people who are researching that that very thing of aeroelastic uh, buildings and um, and optimizing designs for wind loads. Yeah, for sure. Because I, I got to tell you, being uh, now I was I was we covered. I was born in Central Illinois, but we we moved down to Florida, Central Florida, when I was very very young. Mm -hmm. So mostly Floridian. Um, the benefit is I can drink my tea sweet or unsweet. It's no factor either way. Um, but, you know, being down here and watching now, of course, the rage nationwide is these stupid cookie cutter four or five story apartment buildings, uh, you know, that they slap different facades on and everything else about them is the same. And it's very intentional. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's plenty of information out there about that. But watching these things go up here in Central Florida and seeing a brick first story and everything above it's matchsticks and particle board. And... Yep. You know, having been here when Andrew came through, having been here for the 2000, well, I was actually out of state for the 2004 hurricanes and drove plywood. I drove to the hurricane with plywood from North Carolina uh, to help the family board up and then uh, rode some of those out. Uh, and then the ones here recently, I, you know, I look at that uh, wood framing on those apartment complexes and just shake my head. Just, I mean, live there well, fine, but for sure evacuate. It can it depends on, so like any good engineer, I'm going to say it depends, right? Yeah. It depends on what building code they built that to and if they followed it. Because there are ways to put up a, a wood frame structure that are absolutely perfectly suited for the hurricane hazard. Like, I know a lot of people who design them. Um, however, not to put Texas too much under the bus, but I will. Texas don't have a building code because Texas. God, I love them. And, you know, then you get things like what happened during Hurricane Harvey. Where you have thousands and thousands of people displaced because their homes weren't built to a building code. Yeah. But you have places like Florida that build those four and five story tall buildings that have hurricane straps. They have a load path that flows all the way from the roof to the foundation and the foundation is anchored to the ground really well. And they have reinforced windows and reinforced garage doors and all the things that make a, a building resilient to hurricanes that none of them are super rocket science. 
but thankfully people who could do rocket science have thought of them for you and have put it in a building code that's available as a U.S. citizen because all of our taxpayer money has gone towards it. So use it, right? Anyway, I can get on a soapbox for a long time about that. Um, But the really interesting thing is not only do uh, the folks that I work with research what happens um, uh, or different ways to design buildings, but they also go out after to see how they've performed. Um, there's a whole group of people who um, go out after, during each hurricane, props to uh, Forest Masters and his team at the University of Florida, they go put up instruments in the way of hurricanes to get um, the, gra- the ground to about 30 feet um, wind measurements, and yeah. speed, temperature, all that. And then there's teams of people going out afterwards to see how different types of buildings performed given the wind loads that they saw and how they performed to what the building code was the year that they were built. Yeah. Um, and if they actually performed as designed. No, it's, it's cool stuff, man. And now, so you mentioned rocket science and somewhere here <laughs> in yeah. the, uh, the Purdue university area of the bio, there was a mention of NASA. So where's that come into play here for you? Yeah. Yeah. So for, for about a year and a half or so, I worked for um, a, a couple who are married to each other both professors at Purdue, one in mechanical, one in civil engineering, and the civil engineer I still work for, uh, mechanical engineer I I no longer do, but she is the director of the uh, Resilient Extraterrestrial Habitats Institute, which is essentially like the natural hazards thing I've been doing for a while, but on Mars and the moon, and helping to write the beginning of kind of like a building code yeah. for how are we going to live on the moon? How are we going to live on Mars when Elon Musk sends us all there? You know, what do those structures look like? What hazards are they going to be subject to? How do we test that? How do we design that? Uh-huh. So um, thankfully, there are some very smart people working on that from all over the place uh, who are just really, really amazing folks. I actually talked to uh, my friend Don Whitaker last night. Uh, shout out to Don, who is a Phenomenal environmental engineer and phenomenal human being, and is is one of the uh, one of the smartest people I know. Um, but they're looking at like how do you design something like a heating and air conditioning system for a habitat on the moon that has to be subjected to everything from radiation to super cold temperatures to super hot temperatures to vacuum to micrometeorite impacts. What are you going to do? Um, so, yeah. So the, um, I, it was a very, very small part of a really extraordinary team um, of people coming together to, to try and begin to answer some of those questions. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's interesting puzzles to solve, right? Like we've, we've touched on this some, we've got a, our own resident Neil deGrasse Tyson, which is actually uh, my wife's little brother, but he's uh, his undergrad is in physics and he's working on his doctorate uh, in electrical engineering and working with some really fancy lasers uh, up at the university of Michigan now. Uh, But uh, he, he comes on and and blows our minds with some science every now and then. And uh, we just got into talking about time travel one, one time and all, all of the many reasons that it's, practically impossible beyond what you assume would make it pretty much impossible. Just the, the placement of you're trying to travel someplace in time on earth. It's not just that you need to know where on earth you're going. You would have to know where earth was 
when you're going there, not just in orbit around our yeah. sun, but its position in our galaxy and in the universe, which will be different than the time you're traveling from, right? All these different complexities that until yeah. you really sit down to think about it beyond, you know, Doc Brown and Marty McFly, it's, you think, oh, it's complicated, but it's so, it's orders of magnitude more complicated. It's always those like unknown unknowns. Like right. you don't know what you don't know until you start digging you. Go, oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. <laughs> well, and you look even with our, our, our first travel to the moon, it's just the, the issues that we ended up with just with how corrosive, um, corrosive is the wrong yeah. word, but abrasive the moon abrasive dust was the and dust how is, fine. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That was that was something that I like. I never thought I would read so many papers about Martian soil <laughs> because we don't have any. Yeah, we, we we don't have any. Like, we don't. Yeah. Um, spoiler alert: It's pretty hard to get right. So, how do we account for things like what that dust is going to do when yeah. we don't really know um, what it's like? I mean, we have instruments out there that are that are trying to answer some of those questions yeah. and they they're doing a good job of you know soil sample spectral analysis and all sorts of things but that only gets you so far yeah. until you, you really need some of the real stuff um to to test things so um yeah it was pretty interesting to see like um you can um 3d print with martian dust or and and lunar dust as well with the right binder um because Martian soil has sulfur in it, which can melt at high temperatures, and so you could uh, you could actually 3D print with it. And I was like, oh, that'd be kind of cool. So all sorts of fun stuff that yeah. you you dive into, and then you realize just how complex that would be. Um, there's a, a really big topic called in situ resource utilization. And yes. Like, okay, like we need to figure out how we're going to make rocket fuel and water and air and food yeah from the things that are on mars <laughs> well and that's you know we we got into pretty heavily over set many episodes on the podcast into the perseverance rover um the you know mm -hmm. the podcast was hot and heavy we, you know my wife and i we actually went out to ksc watched the the landing as live as you could you know eight oh, minutes after so it happened cool. yeah. out at ksc eight after it happened, yeah. um, that kind of thing it, but one of the really cool uh, projects, some of the science that was included in Perseverance, and I can't remember the name of the module, but was it, it's in situ oxygen generation, and it's actually performed very, very well, very promising. So it's it's producing not insignificant amounts of oxygen uh, with in situ resources, which is really cool. And then, of course, part of the yeah. mission that's really neat about Perseverance and is unique to that rover is that it's taking samples specifically with the intention of them being returned to earth. Now that's the fun, happy yeah. part. That's the fun, happy part of the story. The sad part of the story is when you now, the way we're going to get these back is an incredibly ambitious mission. Oh my gosh. Of sending yeah. another lander with another Rover to collect those, to load those onto a small spacecraft, launch off the Martian surface and return them here and do all of that safety safely it's a big ask but when you see the time frame it's in, oh, a, yeah. in a land where spacex exists and is now spoiling us with go fast break things and, and do it again um yeah. like seeing the time frame for returning those samples from mars which is the first thing that came to mind when you were talking about we don't have samples yet well we're we're gonna 
We're yeah. gonna. It's but just gonna be like not as fast as I'd like to. Yeah, yeah, when they're like, oh, by the end of the, the you know this decade, which okay, we'll tack on you know any thirty to fifty percent onto whatever timeline they're projecting. I'm like, can we yeah. just can we just give this one to Elon guys? Look, perseverance, great job. The ingenuity heli- ingenuity helicopter like should be it I should mean, it should win like, all the engineering awards. It's on its forty second flight. It's on its forty second like, flight. We have a helicopter on mars like just let that sink in for a yes. second like we're flying a helicopter yeah. on mars yeah that was that was something we covered with uh who we lovingly refer to as physicist jason which he's got some real existential issues with whether or not he calls himself a physicist now that he's moved on to electrical engineering but uh eh. just uh, getting this applied physicist getting this craft to fly in 40 percent of our atmosphere right you know, it's the, you know, the same challenge that keeps helicopters from, say, being able to pull people off the top of Everest. It's that same challenge, right, that they're trying right, to. Which gets gets to why we do space exploration. Like, think think about the innovations that are coming, going to come in high altitude rescue from this helicopter we put on Mars. Like, it wouldn't surprise me to be to see some amazingly specialized helicopter technology or drone technology come out for rescuing people at high altitude from this project yeah yeah one of my all-time favorite kind of takes on that right because it's it's easy especially you know like budget fights in dc or hot topics again right now as they are every few yep. months and you know either we're going to raise the debt ceiling again or we're not and we're all going to die or we're not and it all depends on who you listen to and they're all lying to you a little bit anyways but uh i loved the show west wing when it was when it was on uh, full disclosure, not my politics, great television. Loved the show West Wing. And there's a point where Rob Lowe's character, Sam Seaborn, somebody's asking him about the money we're spending on. I, I, I might be botching this a little bit, but the application works. You know, why spend this money on space or on science or on discovery? Uh, and his response is just because we left the cave and we went over the hill and we got to the ocean and we crossed the ocean. We go because it's what next? It's what's next. Mm-hmm. we're explorers and it's what we do and you don't know what's going to come of it. Yeah. And so you go. Yeah. Yeah. We go because it's there, right? <laughs> yeah. What's, you know, having to actually think through and from a professional standpoint, from an expert standpoint, habitats in these austere conditions, right? Where, okay, that top level thinking, right? You know, a layman we're thinking about, Oh, you got to make sure it's airtight. And you, you know, you would assume, Oh, you got to have airlocks, stuff like that. What are some of the biggest challenges you think facing off world habitats? I, to to oh, me, man. my guess as a, you know, uh, I, I don't want to gild the lily too much here. I think about these things and I read up on these things, maybe more than the average layman. So still a layman, but to me, like, um, you know, so solar weather and, and radiation, I think are some of the biggest challenges to overcome long-term in these situations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would agree. Uh, radiation is a big one. Um, radiation and, and then just all the other has like, like on the, on the moon, there are moon quakes on the Mars. There are Mars quakes. There's, you know, no atmosphere on the moon. Um, so things like micrometeoroids are a big deal. Um, on Mars, huge dust storms for a lot of the year. Um, you know, they cover up things like solar panels and make them not work as well. Um, 
and, and to braid things. So there's there's huge challenges. Um, you know, you name some of the common ones. So yeah, it's it's that, but then you get into the next level of okay, let's say we solve the radiation problem on a moon habitat, for example, by building a habitat in a in an old lava tube, which is something that uh, uh some of some of the planetary science people at Purdue are thinking about. Uh, shout out to my buddy Antonio Bobet. Um but then the next problem is you put humans in a lava tube in a structure inside that lava tube and ask them to live. We aren't designed for that. Yeah. Like, like I wouldn't survive, honestly. Like, I'm a pretty hardy guy, um, but I have found if I don't get exposed to sunlight regularly, I get very depressed very quickly. So the next challenge is just, it's more of a human one than a technical one is once you solve some of those big technical problems, then it's how do we find the kind of people who would not go insane in that environment and get them to actually work together? I mean, that's why we have things like the NASA astronaut training program and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's highly selective for lots of good reasons. Um, so yeah, it's 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 as much as a human uh, challenge as a technical one when you get to those uh, extremes. Do you think though that maybe there there's some aspect of, um, you know, like the the adventure, the the exploration factor for the right oh, indiv- yeah. for the right individual overcomes oh, yeah, overcomes sure. overrides. Yeah, that, absolutely, right? absolutely, yeah, yeah. We, I mean, that's why you have people like. Uh, you know, my friends who work in submarines, right, is they are the kind of people who have a strong enough sense of purpose of why they're there, that being in a metal cylinder underwater for six months is a good idea. And they're fine with it. <laughs> so, you know, uh, props to them. I'm not one of them. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so it's it's if you, if you have a, a, a strong enough why, you can accomplish any how i can't remember who that quote is attributed to but it's somebody smart than me. just take just take credit um, for it nobody's gonna know it's all you <laughs> simon Sinek or somebody like that right <laughs> so it's the, it's the power of why right yeah um so and, and that's good that gets to what, like what i'm really passionate about these days though i love the science i love working with uh with my scientists and engineer buddies um i really love exploring for myself and showing others how to do it in the midst of you know a wife and three kids and a day job and church and uh, and hockey for the kids and all the things. Um, how do you find a strong enough sense of purpose to get through the challenges of life? And how do you um, ask better questions of yourself so that you are looking for ever more challenging challenges and are able to meet them? Is that, uh, you know, so you talked some, you know, going going all the way back to, you know, you're at your dream job post-college. <clears throat> and I, I think I'm only paraphrasing slightly when I say, you, you know, you said you died some during those years. So it's like, here's this yeah. whole run up, right? Like you go from this kid playing with toy submarines, right? And reading, you know, watching the hunt for October, reading the hunt for October. You're, you're there, right? You're, you're doing the gig. You're designing the bolts that Tom Clancy's going to write about when he's overly descriptive in his novels. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he's going to write about my electrical penetrations. 
<laughs> he re- but he will. But he will. I mean, <laughs> yeah, God bless him. He really would. Um, you know, and so not quite fulfilling there. So you, you make the move to fill a gap in somewhere else, and that's not quite the right fit. And now you've you know you've moved on to Caterpillar and then to Purdue. And so I kind of that experience, I would assume, is kind of what informs this mindset, this questioning that you've just explained. Um, and is that kind of what led to, because, you know, um, I want to touch on a little bit, A, because we're affiliates and we love them, but it's part of what connected us. Is that kind of what led you to seek out something like Go Yeah, Rock? absolutely. Yeah. So, wow, that was a long way back. Uh, so, yeah, um, I, I found out about Go Rock at a time where I was like, I know I need to be doing harder physical things. Like I should be running and lifting weights and things, but I don't really like any of that stuff. Um, and I came across the idea of rucking. I'm like, Oh, that's something I can get behind. Like carrying heavy weight in cool backpacks. Yes. I know it's not a backpack company. Don't kill me, Jason. I, I know I've got the book. It's on my shelf for a reason. Uh, so, and I could do that while I'm pushing my toddler in a stroller. And I should. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it got to like, okay, that's it's just that two-degree shift to, to pick the harder path. That, that old Teddy Roosevelt thing, right? Choose, choose the harder path, and, and then eventually your path kind of chooses you. Um, and over, over time, you become the kind of person who chooses the harder thing. And that, Hi. Um, <laughs> See, a dog, a dog would spooked. never do that to you. It's spooked by something. Um, anyway, yeah, you, you choose the harder thing, and then eventually that shapes you into a, a person who's able to persevere. Um, so, yeah, I trained for, for uh, a little while to, to do a GORUCK event. Um, my first one was back when they were called Lights. I did, a, I did a light in Indianapolis and ended up carrying a railroad tie for six hours with 10 other people I hadn't met before yeah. and doing burpees in a fountain and yeah, light. all the go ruck things. Um, I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> uh, the second one I did was a whole lot more challenging and actually really formed, help, helped me form a piece of my identity. I didn't know I needed. Um, I, Cause I've been working for a while on like, how do I, how do I decouple my identity as a, as a man, as a person from what I do for other people? Like, how do I separate me from my work? Yeah. I'm still working through that to a certain extent, but um, part of that was I discovered at three in the morning in Chicago um, during the Mogadishu mile Memorial uh, tough challenge 2015. It's like 45 degrees outside and raining, and we're we are we are paying for our transgressions. We had we had uh, incurred I mean, like 23 infractions during the admin phase of that, <laughs> and so for each of the infractions, we do 10 reps of whatever exercise the cadre tell you to do, and so we're doing like 60 cherry pickers and 70 jumping jacks and you know 54 count flutter kicks with your ruck above your head, and I'm like, uh, like got my ruck barely above my head and i'm like i can't somebody in front of me says Beth, yes you can don't you have to quit on me I'm like fine <laughs> and 
in that moment, it was like, okay, I've got a choice here. I can become the kind of person who quits under adversity, or I can become the kind of person who does one more flutter kick. I choose to be the kind of person who does one more flutter kick. And that's all I had to do was one more flutter kick. And then I had the same choice presented to me multiple times in a row, (laughs) but it was always the same choice. Do one more flutter kick or quit. I choose not to quit. Okay. We get to do one more flutter kick. And then, you know, eventually my brain caught up with me and was like, okay, we know the sun has to rise eventually, right? Yes, the sun has to rise eventually. Physics tells us this. Okay, do you know if you can get to sunrise, you're probably going to be okay. I acknowledge that if I can get to sunrise, I'm probably going to be okay. All right, we're going to get to sunrise. Let's do it. And got to sunrise and go, oh, my God, this is hard. I'm like, you got to sunrise, didn't you? Yes, I acknowledge I just got to sunrise. Okay, well, if you can get to breakfast and get some biscuits and gravy, you're going to be all right, aren't you? Well, yeah, biscuits and gravy solves everything. Okay, get the biscuits and gravy. Go get some. And I did. It's like, yeah. you know, just just find that next thing, however short in front of your face, you gotta make it so that you can you can do it. Well, and I, I like the way that uh Rob O'Neill puts it. Rob O'Neill, of course, who famously um, you know, released Osama bin Laden from his mortal obligations. Um, but you know, his take, and you hear a lot of this, you know, you you work with and around SEALs, and you hear this from a lot of, of seals uh you know in their memoirs and in their books because every good seal has a book um you know talking about you know the the guys that get through buds the guys that get through hell week and of course there's the types like jocko that play it down they they really feel like hell week and buds aren't worth talking about because you just you just don't quit but the guys that break it down a little bit more and and rob o'neill puts it this way this just it's it's elegant but not easy (laughs) yes well (laughs) rob just says uh, quit tomorrow I'll, i'll just i'll just quit tomorrow or, you know, it's, I, I think I, I've heard Marcus the Trope put that way. Like, just finish this evolution. Then if you, like, then you can quit before the next then thing. Just, just, yeah. just finish this one, right? Setting those, those small, I mean, I once rode a yeah. bike over several mountains by that same mindset. Uh, I was super into uh, road cycling for a while back before I got married. Um, and I mean, I got way into it. I mean, I was riding hundreds of miles a week, but I was doing that in Florida. Our mountains are overpasses. It's about all you get. Yeah. Um, certainly here in, certainly here in central Florida. Um, you know, there's an area kind of on the West side of central Florida where it's quote unquote hilly. Um, that's where we go to do our our mountain training, but there's a a pretty famous, uh, big ride, a a century, a hundred mile ride through the mountains in North Georgia and Dahlonega. It's called six gap. Um, now I wasn't overly ambitious. There's a version of it called three gap. That's around 50 miles. Now the year I went up to do it, they were kind enough to tack on some mileage, uh, not unlike go ruck. I'm not entirely certain that Jason and Emily weren't involved that year. Um, but, uh, so you're, you're climbing three mountains in, instead of six and, uh, got there and just, boy, nothing I had done here mattered. I mean, I, I realized as I'm going up the first climb, I can't remember what the incline is, but it was seven miles long. Um, and uh, you, I just realized nothing I was going to do down here was genuinely going to prepare me for that in real life. Yeah. So I put it in the lowest gear, and I sat on my seat, and I started grinding. It took me an hour to get mm-hmm. up that climb. Um, and the whole time thinking, oh, well, this is a different thing than I thought it was. But it was, I'll just, I'll just finish this one, right? Like, I'll just get to the top. Yeah. I'll get to the sag stop, uh, you know. 
and I'll, I'll quit there. But of course you get to the top and the whole point in doing this is the downhill, which you also don't get to experience here. And it's a different thing. And so I'm like, well, I'll do the downhill because there's no work in that. Right. Um, and <laughs> yeah. actually really, really a, a bummer. There was a rider from Miami there that year doing the, uh, six gap. And again, we don't get a lot of experience with this down here and mm-hmm. overshot a turn. And, uh, that was, that was Ooh. it. I mean, it was, it's, it's serious. Um, you try not to think about that too much when you go into those, those rides, but, uh, yeah. you yeah. know, so I finished the downhill. I'm like, well, I'm down here. I might as well start the next one. And I did that all the way through what I think ended up being like 65 miles of this ride, right? It's just, I'll I'll grind it out. I'll I'll quit when I'm done with this part. Oh, well, I'm Mm -hmm. here. I might as well get the reward. And then if I can't handle the next part, I'll quit then. And it's not, I'm not comparing that ride, you know, in any real way to anything like Buds or Hell Week, but it's that same mentality. It's that, that insurmountable thing is only insurmountable. If you, if you're viewing it from where you're at right now with the skills that you have right now and viewing it in its totality, uh, but taking in bites and allowing yourself room to improve your own capacity throughout the process, then it becomes a different thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's how I got through the 50 mile star course a few years later in July in Indianapolis. Dude, July, is July is not the right time to do uh July is not the right time to do a 50 miler. No, it is not. Uh, oh gosh. Yeah. My hamstrings hurt. Just talk, just thinking about it. Um, yeah, that was, yeah. It, you know, we, we got through, Oh, I don't know. 12 or so miles, maybe a little bit more. Um, we're in downtown Indianapolis. It's midnight and we're, we're feeling good about ourselves. We've crossed off a few, a few waypoints. We look at our, our map for the next one and it's 18 miles away. And we go, Oh, good Lord. <laughs> what have we done? <laughs> and we're like, we're going to be on the same road all night, like literally all night. Yeah. And, and we got to where we were going, uh, you know, as the sun was rising at five 30 in the morning or something and go, we have just absolutely screwed ourselves. Cause we, like, it is now only going to get hotter. It is now only going to get harder. One of our eyes almost quit. And that's where another 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 tactic comes in that's super helpful is a, co- a code of conduct. We had agreed we were going to live up to, as best we could, the Ranger Creed. And a handy thing about the Ranger Creed in it, it says, quit is not a Ranger word. And we literally put it on loop on YouTube for a while as we were going through that morning. Like, hey, remember this? Quit, quit is not a Ranger word. All right, we're not going to quit. Let's go. Yeah. You need me to carry your ruck for a while? Cool, we'll do that. That's not in the Ranger Creed that we can't do. Sweet, I'll carry that. You carry mine later. Later, <laughs> but quit is not a Ranger word. I I had, and I think you'll appreciate this. And this is a bit of a digression, but regular listeners will know it's kind of how we roll here. Um, so I've done a twenty. I haven't done the fifty yet. I've done a twenty-six point two, and I've done several twelve milers. And I had this grand plan for the twenty-six point two because when we were first starting up, of course. There were like five, maybe six guys. I thought, well, I think five's the cap. So it was probably four, maybe five guys that were going to do it with us. And I'm like, listen, boys, if we are intentional about a rotation of one guy takes their ruck off and one of the other guys carries it for 15 minutes and then it comes back to you, you're only under two rucks for 15 minutes, which really is not bad, but you're Mm -hmm. out from under the weight for an hour if there's five of us and Mm -hmm. that kind of rotation, like the, the rest 
to me, exceeds the beat down for that little window of, of extra weight. Oh, yeah. And unfortunately, we ended up with three of us, and my plan fell apart. Now, we finished, and we finished well before our time hack. I'll say we had, uh, there's a, a regular guest on the podcast here. We call him uh, Mike Redacted for reasons we won't get into right now. But actually, the, uh, the uh, episode artwork for his last time on the podcast is him actually wearing all three rucks, giving the other two of us a break because Mike is, <laughs> in fact, a stud. Uh, he wasn't that way for very <laughs> He's long. He's a cyborg. <laughs> yeah. Now, he, he'll tell it a little differently. He wasn't under all three of them for very long. Um, but, uh, it's long enough. However long it was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was long enough for sure. But, uh, we're, we're targeting now. Now, again, we'll see if as many people are in when the time comes as are in right now. Uh, but we're targeting Normandy next summer. Uh, so, so funny story about Normandy. Um, I have this little vial of sand here, which means a great deal to me from Omaha beach. I actually didn't. Um, harvest this sand. Someone sent it to me because I forgot to get some myself <laughs> when I was on Omaha Beach, like that's, a crazy person. That's good looking out right there. But it was a year-long adventure that all started with Jason and his crazy awesomeness posting a challenge to meet him and go wreck people in Normandy for the 75th anniversary V-Day. To which I jokingly commented, Ha! I'll see you there with my two kids and a baby when she comes. And he's like, great, we're bringing our family too. See you there. <laughs> and it went back and forth like that for a little while of like egging each other on in the comment section until I've been like, I can't weasel my way out of this anymore. Like, I have to do this. But my wife's pregnant with our third child. How do I bring up something crazy like this to a pregnant lady who... I mean, she's one of the most patient people I know, but her patience has limits. Um, you know, she married a crazy person, but she'll only follow me so far. So um, how do I have this conversation? Um, thankfully, I've become friends with Emily, and she was like, don't worry, I'll coach you through the conversation. So time passed. Uh, we are sitting in the hospital waiting to meet our lovely third daughter, our second second daughter, third child, Felicity. And I messaged Jason, jokingly, saying, hey, I'm going to join you in the Dad of Three Club this week. He messages me back. And he says, hey, time to use that GoRuck training. Drink your coffee outside, bring your ice chips, rub her feet. She's got a pretty crap deal here. Suck it up. You got this. Something to that effect. Yeah. I was like, Man, the the care this guy has for his community. A guy he doesn't know for, you know, he doesn't know my butt from a hole in the ground. We, we had never met to that point. Yeah. And he took the time to just be a dad, to just be another man, and to come alongside me for a second and say, all right, let's do it, teammate. You got this. And I was like, okay. I will do whatever I it, it takes to get to Normandy just to shake that man's hand. Yeah. And um, yeah, pregnancy went off without a hitch. Felicity came along nice and healthily. And uh, Emily coached me through the conversation. And we end up getting to go to Normandy, thankfully realizing it was a bad idea to take all three kids and just taking the baby along with us. Um, and got to have the most amazing experience of 
standing in the water off of Omaha Beach next to Emily, laughing together and splashing, going, USA, USA, with bagpipes <laughs> playing. I'm not joking. You yeah. can look it up on YouTube. And like, what? It's like, I'm pitching myself. Like, is yeah. this real? Did that? Did this really happen? <laughs> um, and it only came by not quitting. Like, okay, this means an awful lot to an awful lot of people. This this event, yeah, the 75th anniversary of D Day landings. I actually have Norman heritage. Like my my family ancestry goes back to the. And so it means an awful lot to me as a person to have gone there at all, let alone for that special event. Um, and I just can't believe we did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's awesome. So, so what it is, is it in this process over, over this journey that we've kind of walked through of your life um, kind of starts to get informed by, by Brett McKay and, and art of manliness and then go Ruck comes in and I feel like kind of reinforces those ideals, kind of, mm-hmm. kind of makes those ideals practical. Right. Um, yeah. So, so what, what was it? What, what switch flipped, what, what clicked oh, in man. that process in that experience that leads to where you're at now that leads to, yes. you know, seal team leaders and, and leads to um, Anthem of the adventurer. It was this little book. Wild at heart, John Eldridge. If your listeners haven't read it yet, and you are male or know a male, which should be all of you, read this book if you want to understand how males work. Um, it blew my mind, heart, and soul in a way. Like I've been in, in church my entire life. Yeah, you know, became a Christian when I was five, um, but I never really knew God, to be honest. Until I read this book and then got to got to meet John on a, on a video call as part of a, a dad's mastermind that I'm a part of, the dad. And I and I asked John like, okay, I read the book, I listened to it while I'm in Oregon for a work trip, um, and he mentioned like the first the first pages here. Actually, I'll read it. Um, <clears throat> so I'm I'm going to read you a couple of paragraphs from this, and I'm going to try not to cry. At last, I am surrounded by wilderness. The wind in the top of the pines behind me sounds like the ocean. Waves are rushing in from the great blue above, cresting upon the ridge of the mountain I've climbed, somewhere in the Sawatch Range of central Colorado. Spreading out below me, the landscape is a sea of sagebrush for mile after lonesome mile. Zane Gray immortalized it as the purple sage, but most of the year it's more of a silver gray. This is the kind of country you could ride across for days on horseback without seeing another living soul. Today, I am on foot. Though the sun is shining this afternoon, will not warm above 30 here near the Continental Divide, and the sweat I worked up scaling this face is now making me shiver. It's late October. Winter is coming on. In the distance, nearly 100 miles south by southwest, the San Juan Mountains are already covered in snow. The aroma of the pungent sage still clings to my jeans, and it clears my head as I gasp for air. In notably short supply at 10,000 feet, I am forced to rest again, even though I know that each pause broadens the distance between me and my quarry. Still, the advantage has always been his. Though the tracks I found this morning were fresh, only a few hours old, that holds little promise. A bull elk can easily cover miles of rugged country in that amount of time. 
especially if he's wounded or on the run. The Wapiti, as the Indians call him, is one of the most elusive creatures we have left in the lower 48. They are the ghost kings of the high country, more cautious and wary than deer and more difficult to track. They live at high elevations and travel farther in a day than nearly any other game. The bulls especially seem to carry a sixth sense to human presence. A few times I've gotten close. The next moment they're gone, vanishing silently into aspen groves so thick you wouldn't have believed a rabbit could get through. It wasn't this always this way. For centuries, elk lived out on the prairies, grazing together in the rich grasses in vast numbers. In the spring of 1805, Meriwether Lewis described passing herds lolling about in the thousands as he made his way in search of a northwest passage. At times, the curious wandered so close he could throw sticks at them, like bucolic dairy cows blocking the road. But by the end of the century, westward expansion had pushed the elk high up into the Rocky Mountains. Now they are elusive, hiding out at a timberline like outlaws until heavy snows force them down for the winter. If you would seek them now, it is on their terms, and the forbidding haunts well beyond the reach of civilization. That is why I have come, why I linger here still, letting the old bull get away. My hunt, you see, actually has little to do with elk. I knew that before I came. There is something else I'm after out here in the wild. I'm searching for an even more elusive prey, something that can only be found through the help of wilderness. I'm looking for my heart. That grabbed me the, a way, in a way that nothing else ever has. And I asked John, what the heck do I do with that? <laughs> like, it was like somebody had hit me with a big mallet and I was resonating like a gong. I'm like, what is this? Like, what do I do with this? And, he, yeah. and John, in his, in his way of being patient and kind and fun and a really funny guy to be around, um, he's like, that's awesome. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. He's like, you should talk to God about it. I'm like, great, good for you to tell me that, John. Like, what? Like, how? <laughs> like, I prayed a lot, but I never had a conversation. Like, is that possible? I'm like, yeah, he's talking all the time. He wants to talk to you. You just got to ask him. What's my next step? Who are my allies? And just listen. Yeah. Try try it on. What you hear? I'm like, okay, I can do that. So. I asked, and I heard you should start a podcast about adventure. I'm like, really? A podcast about adventure? Like, are there a bazillion of those? I know. You should start one. And you should ask these 12 people to be on it. Okay. Did that. They all said yes. I'm like, well, I guess I have a podcast about adventure now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And a way of, of thinking about and operating in life that has a bias towards the harder path and towards wilderness and towards crazy things yeah <laughs> and hard conversations and risking and uh initiation and all all sorts of things um but yeah it all it all started with wild at heart where did that where timeline wise did that come in the mix between you kind of discovering art of manliness getting involved in go yeah. kind of kind of what it was, what, what uh, led to the next you know where are the the tracks. Yeah, it's a couple of years after after uh, after my first Go Ruck event, um, and it was um, yeah, like 2017 timeframe, somewhere in there. Um, and you know, our kids were really little. All three of them had been born by then. Uh, no, actually, our third wasn't wasn't even born yet. Uh, it was just just Alex and Jane. Um, 
Yeah. And so I was um, kind of in the in the middle of um, another transition period of, of like, okay, I've kind of started to dial in this physical thing a little bit. Um, I've seen the benefits of, uh, you know, taking the harder path and of team and of, of persevering, but I look around, I still don't really like myself. Why is that? Yeah. Um, and one of, uh, John's, uh, friends and, and protégés is, is vice president of, uh, of discipleship. Morgan Snyder poses a, a really challenging question in, in his book, becoming a king, which a little more recent to, to me. Um, what's not working? And how you answer that question really informs a lot about your identity and your your frontier as a man, your next your next step to uh, in in being initiated as a man. And the answer to that question then was quite a few things <laughs> were not working. Um I wasn't a super good, um, you know, good at training. I wasn't, I was very needy as a friend uh, and, and a husband. I was um, not quite inattentive as a father, but um, confused, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of other things that I've, that I've been working on over the years. Um, I don't have them all figured out yet. Spoiler alert. Yeah, hope you haven't gathered that by by now. Let's take it this much, but um, yeah, I can't remember where we were, where we were at question wise. <laughs> well, just kind of you know the the bullet point, kind of what led to where, what informed the next thing. So, which I think you said, kind of you know you read the book at the you know after a few Go Ruck events. So I, th- I think that kind of tracks the yeah. progression here. Now you know um, we've talked about it on the podcast here you know my background worked in uh, full-time ministry for a long time for well over a decade i'm actually just finishing up my first term as a board member at a uh at a mega church which is just terrifying mm. from all angles um yeah it's uh you know it's a congregational election uh, elected position i to this day i don't know what they were thinking um my the initial email about my nomination i thought someone who i used to work with uh was just trolling me um and uh here, <laughs> Is this a joke? here i am at the end of the term and it was a good time and so you know i've I've said on the podcast before you know uh and started the the podcast with a buddy that i used to work with at that same church and never made any bones about our faith but we've always often said uh you know we're i'm a christian with a podcast not a christian podcast right yeah um, it's that old i think it's saint francis was- St. Francis of Assisi says, you know, always preach the gospel, sometimes use words. Yes. Yeah, I love that quote. And so, <laughs> um, you know, but we, we touch on the, the spiritual from time to time. And some of our, you know, one of our, our most regular uh, guests uh, is a professor at a Bible college uh, up in, uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, and so, you know, mm. we, we touch on Christianity and, and the spiritual from time to time. And of course, we, you know, personally don't equate those two things, right? I think those are on, on different, you know, spiritual doesn't make you mm-hmm. a Christian, um, necessarily and a doesn't make you spiritual necessarily so, either uh, for, for sure. And so, or at least uh, calling you know, yourself one anyway, let's be, let's be precise with our language there. So I haven't, I, all this to say, you know, I like, uh, well, the heart's kind of been out there in the ether for me. I've heard the title plenty. Mm. I've heard the book talked about plenty. I haven't read it yet myself. Yeah. Is, is it a Christian book or, or is it a secular it is. book? It yeah. is a Christian book. Okay. Yeah. Very much Christian book. Yeah. It, the, the, the whole thesis is, um, 
men are created first with a masculine heart, first and foremost. Yeah. And the masculine heart is driven by three three desires: an adventure to live, a battle to fight, a beauty to love. And is um haunted by a core question. Do I have what it takes? Well, and we used to societally, we used to answer that question, and very few yeah. societies still do. We rites of passage, you find them throughout history, throughout mm-hmm. all types of different societies. And you don't, but you don't see it anymore in very, very yeah. limited quantity of places. One of the few places you do see it is in the military. And I think that's why yeah. so many even, you know, non-prior service guys like you and I are still always drawn to those stories, to those people that have done those things. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's the stuff really that, not to discredit service on, on any level, uh, right? Um, in the military, but you know, like boot camp doesn't really, it doesn't really flip the switch. doesn't really pique the curiosity, but when you get into ranger school, when you get into selection yeah. for SF, when you get into yeah. buds, when you get into green team beyond that, um, you know, even the stuff that's part of the curiosity behind like the CIA and going to the farm and, you know, all, all those things mm-hmm. it's in our, our, the lizard brain sees the rite of passage right? Like we know yeah. intuitively what that is. So I don't know that a lot of people think about, oh, why did I want to sit and watch GI Jane, right? Why did I want to sit and watch Tears of the Sun? Yeah, I'm sorry. They're all mm. seal, seal movies because let's be honest, they're all seal movies. Um, you know, It's actually a really good like first uh, access into, into this. If, if you haven't read Wild Heart and aren't familiar with it, think through like list. Let's, let's do, let's play around. Let's play with you here. What are your top two favorite movies, or or three if you can't think of a top two? Like, what are some of your favorite movies? See, this is going to sound cliche now, and it's not because of the sequel. As a young, possibly uh, inappropriately young child, I could have quoted along with the whole movie. I'm going to name two movies as one because they are the same movie in different settings: Top Gun and Days of Thunder. All right, mm. I can I can equally quote yeah. Cold Trickle and Maverick. Effortlessly, no mm-hmm. problem. Um, man, beyond that, it gets it gets tricky. Um, yeah, so let's start, let's let's stick there then. Yeah. So t- let's Top Gun Maverick. Why? What like what is it about the story and the characters and how they operate that makes your masculine heart go ooh? Uh, Dan, I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm not that introspective, buddy. It's because it's a good movie. <laughs> Yeah. Well, what, well. So, why do why do you like yeah. it? Like, what what do you go? Yeah, I love that. Uh, you you do. Um, uh, it is that it is that hero's journey, right? It is that really. It goes all. You know, you want to talk about what is a, a good. There's only so many stories that can be told, right? Like uh, yeah. English. You know, lit majors and English majors will, will break that all down <laughs> for you. It's all there's, the hero's journey. The, you know, the, the older you get, when you're like, oh. Can't they come up with any original ideas for TV shows or movies? No, they really can't because there's only like five, right? And the rest is is window dressing. So it's like, yeah, I, I, it appeals for the same reason that Beowulf appeals, right? It's that yeah. hero's journey. It's overcoming those flaws. It's, um, you know, it's the it's the growth. It's the strength. It's the protector. 
aspect. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't Kelly McGillis. I think that uh, somebody else should have played female lead. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and here it's there. There's the loss and the dealing with that. Spoiler alert. Sorry. Yeah. It's not good for goose. Don't get too attached. Uh, yeah. You know, you can always go get more Anthony Edwards on uh, ER. So don't worry about it. He's fine. Um, but so, yeah, it, though, those aspects, right. It's um, yeah. 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 So. And jets that, are awesome. A, a good. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's a good on ramp. If you're, if you're curious about yourself and how you're wired. Um, apparently Siri is curious about. <laughs> I don't know how that. I have no idea how that uh, turn of phrase triggered the virtual assistant on my uh, MacBook, but they're always we'll, listening. We'll leave that to Apple. Apple. Anyway, think about the next time you watch one of your favorite movies, why you like it so much, and what the characters do for you on a soul level. My my favorite um, movie that comes up whenever I ask myself this question is Last Samurai, another Tom Cruise movie. Um, and it's for, have you, have you seen it? I don't want to spoil oh, it. If you oh, haven't, yeah, but yeah. It's no. from 2003. Yeah, so yeah. I think we're past the statute of limitations <laughs> here. So if you haven't watched last samurai, pause this podcast and go watch it and then come back. Yeah. And I will say in advance, good, so people don't prejudge it. This isn't Tom Cruise playing a role that legitimately should have been some Asian actor. This isn't the whole no. Matt Damon on the great wall situation. No, it no, makes no, no, sense no, when not. you watch it. <laughs> yeah, but at the, in the in the final scene or near the final scene, I can't remember if it's the actual final. But there's a scene at the at the end of the movie where the emperor of Japan is um, asking about his friend who has just been killed by the imperial army. Um, Tom Cruise is in his dress uniform. He's respectable. He's gone through a lot. He's cleaned up his act. He's become a different man and he has his friend katsumoto's sword and he's presenting it to the emperor and the emperor asks him tell me how he died and tom cruise says no i'll tell you how he lived i almost can't say that without crying yeah because i want to be the kind of man that other people say that about me when I'm gone. I'll tell you how he lived. Right. I want that said of me. Well, and that's, that's that, um, Dakota Meyer take, right. Um, which isn't original to Dakota, but that's, that's his whole own the dash thing that he pushes. Mm -hmm. Right. There's only going to be a few things on your headstone, no matter how big it is. You know, your name, uh, you know, maybe father, maybe son, maybe husband, maybe some kind words, but there's going to be a start date and an end date, and there's going to be a dash between them. There's going to be a hyphen and everything you do mm-hmm. in your whole life falls within that dash. All right in there. Yeah. And, and that's the idea. And, and you, you didn't control the beginning date and you can't control the end date. You can you can avoid habits that might hasten it, though you can be perfectly fit. You can be a specimen and get hit by a bus, right? So, but you cannot intentionally shorten when that date mm-hmm. comes. But even then, um, you you don't really get to pick the end date. But you can 
you've got some say in the dash in the hyphen. Yep. Yep. So where does um where does what you're doing now come in to play for that then? How, where does Anthem of the Adventurer and, and what you're doing yeah. with SEAL team leaders come into that? Yeah, so it came it came in and basically like that adventure to live part like really grabbed me as you know, as a normal upper middle class white dude grow and growing up in the Midwest, like I didn't have a whole lot of opportunity for adversity. <laughs> like let's just be honest. So I gotta go find it and make it myself. Yeah. That's that's kind of the adventures that that I gravitate towards. Um, up, yeah, and so we we need that. We need the wilderness, as John said. We need the unknown. We need to grapple with it because it shapes us. It calls us out. It calls us up into something bigger than ourselves. Because as much as we love the, the story of the hero's journey we're not actually supposed to be the hero of the story. Like that's not a big enough story. Um, so, so it's a lot of, of, of inviting other men into that and, and the women who love them. Um, my blog writing partner, Natalie is one of those who's just phenomenal at describing the effect that the masculine soul has on the, on the feminine. She's awesome a great storyteller so she and i write together and we've had a couple other blog writing partners over the years who have come and gone uh, armando uh, jeff who are just great uh, as well and and we we try to tell stories in a way that are that is engaging informative and and a little vulnerable about where you know i'm at in the middle of 13 years married three kids too many irons and too many fires Right. And I don't see a lot of people writing from that perspective or being willing to talk about it because there's too much crazy stuff going on in their life. Yeah. Like you, you see a lot of people writing after that season with the lessons learned from it. I'm like, that's great, but not all that helpful. I actually got to talk to a guy today that I've looked up to for from afar for a long time. Uh, you being a nine, another like late 80s, early 90s kid will appreciate this. I actually got to talk to Richard Karn. Al yes. Borland, yes, from Home Improvement today, and I I asked him a great question. Uh, what I thought was a great question at, at the time. He's so he started Home Improvement at thirty five. How, how old I am? I'm like, if you could tell your thirty five year year old self something that would help him out, what would you tell him? He's like, it doesn't work like that. I'm like, that is really insightful, Al Borland. <laughs> yes, yeah, deep deep thoughts from Al Borland. I love it. Deep thoughts from Al Borland, like it doesn't work like that. And thank goodness it doesn't, right? Like it is the only way to live life is to live life, to live it to the full, to live it adventurously. And living adventurously means not knowing what's coming, but being prepared for it, training for it. Yeah. Taking, taking, uh, Taking life seriously, but not taking ourselves too seriously. Yeah. Not drinking our own Kool-Aid. Well, um, and there, there is, yeah. you know, it's, um, it's an unfortunate dichotomy in that there is, there is a lot of, of pain, uh, unnecessary pain to be avoided mm -hmm. in the wisdom of elders and those that have gone before us. The sad, the interesting thing about that is that, Pain is a very good teacher. And 
sometimes the only way to learn it is the hard way. Oh, yeah. No, agreed. Well, and the reality is that even if even if you could speak to your 20-year-old 20 20 self, even if it was coming from you, we figure out the whole time travel thing and where the Earth was in uh, our position yeah. in the universe and in the... You wouldn't listen to yourself. You can't no. tell a young man anything. No. And what's, what's... What you can do, though... Is tell him that he's not alone and he's not insane. Yes. And that's what guys need. Like, honestly, I, I have three therapists for a reason. Um, like, what we need is to be challenged and to have people come alongside us and get on board. Yeah. Like, we need no, I, people I, to tell us, get yeah. off your butt, go do something hard, bring others along with you. yeah and so yeah anyway so we need we need other we need other people around us we need other guys around us who um i think it's michael easter who uh, quoted this most recently at least when i saw it is uh you need a training partner who, partner who will go harder than you do yeah well uh, you know that's that's the old you're you're the average of you know the five people closest to you. Five I mean, people you just, spend the most time with. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Just, well, um, but the, the added challenge there for young men these days is that 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 same masculinity that we're talking about right now that that needs to be encouraged and molded in them is is now vilified, uh, and and too many of yeah. them lack a a a male role model, a male leader in their life. Yep. To 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 guide them in that. Yeah. Cause they've never seen what real masculinity is. I'm like, I love my beard. I love my flannel. I love my pocket knife, but that doesn't, that's not what makes me masculine. What makes me masculine is that I use my strength for the benefit of other people. That's what masculinity does. That's what true masculinity does. Yeah. I, I saw somebody and this was just such a great current way to put it in sharp relief. Um, is that when when Russia rolled tanks across the border into Ukraine, um, nobody, none of the women in Ukraine were worried about toxic masculinity. Nope. They they were looking for guys who could kill Russians. Yeah. I I have the the privilege of knowing uh, a lady who her and her, her and her family are displaced uh, due to that conflict. And she is the one of the most excellent human beings I know, and she would definitely agree with that statement. Yeah, and and it's you know where we where we have dads in the home still. Too many still aren't a a good role model, a good model of masculinity, and mm-hmm. oftentimes because it wasn't modeled for them, or it was modeled poor poorly. It's talking about this on the podcast a lot humanity's really bad at mm-hmm. overcorrecting when we see a wrong yeah. when we see a wrong we swing Go the pen yeah the pendulum way overshoots middle and just goes flying right past it and i, I think we're seeing yeah. that um with things a lot right now yeah. um i saw a really interesting quote somewhere that i really wish i could find it was an instagram post or something about how some very progressive feminists had come across the idea of traditional marriage <laughs> like saying, 
oh, we're tired of our men always leaving us and cheating on us. And they're like, well, man, if only there was a way to get them to commit for life and care yeah. for us and prioritize us. I'm like, somebody commented like, oh, you've discovered traditional marriage. Yes, yes. <laughs> Well, and, and not to downplay the role, like, you know, I, I've, you've got three, I've got two here, right? And, and very close in age ranges, right? My oldest is, is five. My, my youngest is three. They need what my wife has to offer them. Oh, absolutely. Oh, my God. As much as they yeah. need what I have to offer them, and they need for those mm-hmm. to not be the same thing. Bingo. And, yeah. my, and my daughter my, needs my that. My wife as, offers yeah. amazing, amazing, true beautiful femininity yeah. to our kids. She offers a, a phenomenal example of what a God-loving mother, wife, and woman looks like. She's awesome. And I learn from her every day. Yeah. And there's things that she teaches them that I definitely can't. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's just a shame, you know, too many homes don't have fathers in them or the ones that are there aren't good models of, of healthy masculinity mm-hmm. and of leadership. And then you turn to entertainment and if there's a dad, sometimes there's two, the dad's a punchline, yeah. the dad's a buffoon, the dad's a goof, right? Uh, yeah. That's why we, we watch, uh, I mean, I am not perfect. I hope you gather that already. We watch a fair amount of TV in our house still. Um, one of the one of them that I actually really like is Bluey. Bro. Like the the Solid dude. Seven podcast is a complete stand for Bluey. I'm sure the listeners are over it. I don't care. It's the best show on television. I absolutely agree. Like the parents are real. They care for each other. They care for the kids. They do real things together. They're not like flying off to outer space and time traveling and all these things. They're doing real play. Like they're yeah. showing how to play with your kids and how to go through the messiness of when your kids are annoying little things I won't mention <laughs> on a recording. Uh, you know, like, man, being a parent's hard. Yeah. And it shows how to do it with a playful, curious attitude, which is sorely lacking in myself sometimes. And I need a good example. And sometimes it's Bandit. Yeah. Oh, oh, dude, Bandit. Bandit is hashtag dad goals, man. And it's it's not that he's never the butt of the joke on the show. And I know no. this might I know that might this might seem he that, makes fun of himself. Yes, but he's not he's not a buffoon. No, he's he's not he's not the joke, right? And so you know what? It might be seem like trying to put too much on onto you know this kids cartoon. Um, but you just look at, at all the shows. I mean, going back to to Tool Time, right? Like Tim Taylor, right, was was this goofy buffoon, and you see it with Everybody Loves Raymond. And of course, I, I'm taking it to to older shows. Um, yeah, you know, and actually, it's funny for all of the whatever uh, Modern Family, as goofy as the dad was, he really wasn't the butt of the joke of the of the core family. There was growth for the older dad and for the dad in the middle, and of course, there's a couple extra dads in there. But he was mm-hmm. he was a good husband and he was a good father and he was a successful provider, um, and so yeah. Modern Family, you know, is nice to see some of that and and see somebody get that a little bit right. And he and clearly, you know, Phil Dunphy, not a hyper masculine dude, um, but that's the point is that's not what it's about. It wasn't he didn't exactly. have the pocket knife or you know he was doing magic instead of carrying yeah. you know carrying a knife and wearing a flannel. 
Right. And I know a ton of really good dads who, you know, they don't, they don't identify with the, uh, outdoorsy beard wearing gun toting culture. I, I don't actually own a gun, but it looks like I should. We'll work um, on it. We'll work on it. And that's fine. It's not for a lack of desire. Different conversation for a different day. I enjoy <laughs> firearms. Just, just, uh, I have bows instead. Um, but, um, I do, however, think there are, there are some, like, there is an essential, some essential tools that, uh, Morgan Snyder talks about in, in his, uh, great book, Becoming a King and on his blog, Becoming, uh, Become Good Soil. Um, there are some tools that every man should know how to use and some that a man should carry. One of them being a pocket knife, which funnily enough, I don't have my pocket for now. Um, anyway. Because they are reminders of kind of foundation of true masculinity is we can fix things. Yes. Like we can, we can have a positive effect on the things in our world that are broken and the people in the world that need our help and our care. A pocket knife is a symbol of, I can do real things. Even if you, don't really use it that much. You yeah. just use it to open an Amazon box, and you just, and but as a reminder, it's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I need to prioritize doing real things and being able to um, to have a positive effect on yeah. my life. He calls it being a generalist, like having this good foundation of general skills. I'm I'm chuckling. I should be good at. Yeah, I'm chuckling as you're saying this, and I I know specifically some listeners who will be chuckling along because. Um, I worked around a youth internship, a large youth internship program for a long time while I was at the church. Uh, and so these are a lot of, of post high school young men and women who are mm -hmm. at least curious about going into ministry or want to spend some time working in ministry. Uh, and so it, it was an internship and they were doing, you know, some Bible college courses, stuff like that. Um, and of course you just sit and watch these young ladies make horrible, horrible dating decisions over and over again and every once in a yeah. while one of them would would cruise by the old man and and ask for some advice and i used to give them my rundown of bullet points i'm like if they you, they're not even worth a conversation if you can't check off these boxes and one that i always included was he carries a pocket knife and they'd always chuckle and their first assumption was that it was because i carry a pocket knife and I think I'm the kind of person people should want to be with. And that wasn't the point at all. I would always explain to mm -hmm. them, carrying a pocket knife indicates someone who has a desire to be prepared and useful. Bingo. It's just such a simple indicator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a really great... Um... You know, another another on ramp there. Just like, just try it for like a month. You know, and here's here's a, here's a couple ways you could go about it. If you're the kind of man who carries a knife, find a young man who doesn't and give him one. Ask him to carry it around for a month and then take him out for coffee after and see how it went. Ask him what he used it for. How did he feel? Like how, how does it feel carrying the pocket? Did you lose it? Did you forget to put it in your pocket a couple of times? How did that feel? What what came up? It would be a very interesting conversation. Yeah. Same for if if you yourself 
either have carried one for a while or 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 don't and would like to ask yourself why you would like to and what effect it has on you when you pull that out of your pocket when you put it in your pants in the morning um it's it's that symbol of i am prepared to be useful yeah. today and the twist that the challenge there is we can get a little too wrapped up in that and say, oh, my identity is how I am useful to people. So we want to make sure to not go fully over there because uh, we could take any analogy too far. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that premise is a, is a pretty helpful one. Yeah. And I find it's one with a lot of layers that aren't immediately obvious. Okay. You've got mm-hmm. down that you carry the knife. Cool. Let's see it real quick. Is there, is there tape goop all over it? From the boxes you've been opening, yeah. mm-hmm. could could you cut warm butter with it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, what's what's the edge like on it? Is I actually sharpened mine last night on the bottom of a coffee cup. I found I out that. you can hone a knife on yes. the bottom of a ceramic cup. It's I'm like such a good cheat. What? Yeah, especially for okay. I'm gonna pause just for a second. I'm gonna go get my knife because this is crazy. Hold on. <laughs> Okay. Now we go. My daughter woke up very early this morning, throwing up, and I was distracted. So distracted, oh, I didn't put this in my pants. What a bummer! But, so anyway. okay, well, let's be. Hang on, let's be knife nerds for a minute, and oh, for yeah. for the listeners who are curious. So in the like uh, preparedness and self defense, and in the knife world, and all these, there's this acronym of EDC. It's every day carry. And you'll hear it yep. referred to in packs. What's your EDC, which probably should be a GR1 from GORUCK. Um, what's in your EDC. And things to put in yes. it, like my <laughs> frames back here that I carry different loadouts on. Yeah. So so what what is your, your EDC knife, sir? Yeah, I will it say your primary, because I'm going to assume there's typically more than one. Yeah, I've got a couple. <laughs> um, but this is uh, an Emerson Commander. Oh, I didn't know you were rich. I am not. Uh, I got this as a gift um, from the from the, the SEAL Team Leaders folks. Um, we give these out to our clients when they go through our, our intensive uh, uh, events as a as a symbol that you just did something. Yeah. So on one side, uh, it says God of War to remind you that you can affect the world around you with aggressive action. On the other side, it says man of the heart. It says, without the heart, you're nothing. You need to prioritize your internal life and compassion for your teammates. So I love this knife for a number of reasons. Uh, Chief among which was for for years and years and years, uh, I uh, respected my my buddy Larry because this is the knife he carried as an officer in the SEALs. Nice. Um, and it has got some really cool things about it. Uh, so it's got this little thumb button here uh-huh. that you can open it with. 
Uh, it has a recurve blade, which adds essentially extra cutting length for a shorter blade length. Um, it holds an edge really well. Um, and it's got this little notch here. I think they call it the wave feature, but essentially yeah, it's for wave the original opening. design. The, yeah, the original design was when you're in a knife fight so that the blade wouldn't come up and cut you in the wrist, but it has a very interest, interesting um, uh, secondary use is when you pull it backwards out of your jeans pocket, it opens your knife. Yeah. So you can draw yeah, with, really quickly without it being on uh, load. Yeah, it's a cool feature. Yeah, it is. It is a uh, wonderful, um, wonderful uh, tool to to use. And I found uh, found out how to sharpen the the recurve last night on the bottom of a coffee cup. Nice. Well, mine, I, I'm I'm less enthused to tell you about it. I, I I very well. There's nothing cool on my knife, and I may go grab the Dremel as soon as we're done and correct that. <laughs> Uh, but I'm just fine. Buddy was a laser engraver. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a, a big fan of, of this blade and this model in particular. I just have a hard time finding better bang for the buck a, across all categories. It's a Spiderco Tenacious um, mm. with a G10 handle, and G10 is just the actual material that the, the handle's made out of. It's very, very grippy. When it's, when it's open, it's got listeners, you're not gonna be able to see this, but there's jimping. There's little serrations on the back where your thumb goes for that same reason to prevent slippage. So you mm. can get a good purchase on it. This one is what's, it's called a full flat ground, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of a, a plain blade face. I don't like serrations because mm -hmm. it's such a hassle to sharpen. I want something that I can edge myself or give some guy at the, the farmer's market a couple of bucks to edge. Uh, and then, yeah. you, you know, and then being able to reverse the clip so you can carry it in your pocket, tip up or tip down. Um, I, I just love it. great steel holds an edge and they're just not super expensive and you can spend a lot of money on, on a good oh, knife. Boy, can you? Yeah. Although I will say, I think once in your life, you should like, I, I was about to buy one of these myself. I mean, I'm, and I'm, and I'm not rich by any stretch. Um, but <clears throat> think, thankfully I got one as a gift. So it is worth if you carry a pocket knife around for a long enough time. I mean, these are like thousands of dollars, a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. Right. Like very much less than a paycheck for most of us. Um, so pull together some Christmas money or go find a side hustle for something. Like find a way to make a $200 knife make sense for you. Yeah. And yeah. it's and it's, enjoy it. If you've only ever carried the impulse purchase that was in the little plastic bucket when you were checking out at Home Depot or the gas station, oh man, that you thought was super cool, it's it's a different it's a different game, it's it's a different yeah. level. Though I yeah, think, and, and if you're the one listening who who like is doing pretty well, and you know you, you're you're well into your career and things are going well for you, and and you see a guy who is after that kind of life. And and is valiantly striving for it. Surprising, like give him a really good knife. Yeah, and look him in the eye, say, "Well done, son." Like that will change a man's life. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I've I've gifted several myself. I give good knives. I don't give overly expensive knives, <coughs> but often of the refrain of "Do me a favor and keep it in your pocket," you'll be surprised how much you use it. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, there's a, a there's a lot of a lot of reasons to carry a knife. Um, one I found recently, so I um, I started taking on some some part time work. I'm going through a bit of a bit of a career shift, um, and I, I work part time at a uh, a shop restoring classic Land Rovers. We only work on trucks from the 40s through the 60s, and there's a surprising amount of them in this country, <laughs> um, and they all need work because they're Land Rovers. But um, scribing parts while fabricating has become a, a daily thing with this. I used to cringe at going, ah, I'm on my knees. No, but I'm like, well, I could really sharpen it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Though I, I, I got to um, say, I think um, right now, uh, thanks, Jack Carr, uh, if I spend some, some pricey uh, edged tool money, it's going to be on a Winkler Tomahawk. Ooh, yeah. Right. <laughs> Talk about another writer yeah. who who is very specific about things in their books. Oh, I love it! I love it. We're uh, big, big Jack Carr fans here at the South Seven Podcast, and big, big announcements from him recently on that. Not only another season of the Terminalist series, but a prequel with Taylor Kitsch. They announced so. Lots more. Oh boy! Oh boy! Yeah, lots more coming there. But you touched on some uh, important uh, topics there, and it's and I I, I like um, the way Jordan Peterson puts this right is and it's the two sides of your blade is what made me think of this it's like a man should be an absolute monster and then control it and keep it in check mm-hmm. because if if you're of service if you have heart if you're of use to others if you're polite if you're professional it doesn't hold any meeting if you're not also able to flip that switch and do some damage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's the difference between a wild Mustang and a draft horse or a war horse. Yeah. Wild Mustang is not useful. They're pretty. They're not useful. They're destructive, but not useful. But a draft horse has just as much power as a wild Mustang, maybe even more but it's harnessed for a purpose. Same thing with a with a warhorse and the cavalry back in back in the day, right? Like, man, they could run for days, and um, but they were harnessed for a purpose. They were they were under authority. That's, I think that's the other the other piece uh, that a lot of a lot of masculinity misses, um, uh, for various reasons, but is being under authority we don't like it especially us as, as americans yeah we don't like authority we think it's stupid we think they're dumb we think they're you know whatever flavor of politics yours is you know the other one's stupid and and we don't want it not my president you know that's just a load of crap yeah like i don't particularly care for any of the presidents i've ever lived under but i am a man under authority you know and Anyway, so we need we need to many of us, and I'm still learning this to, to to an extent, is how to operate under the authority of others so that when we are put in authority, we wield it well. Yeah. Well, and so all this that we we've walked through has kind of led you to this point now. Now that you know it's it's a waypoint, not not the destination, right? Yeah, where you're, sure you're, you're kind of putting this <laughs> putting this all together 
Uh, in addition to everything else you've got going on right now, you're working on a book. So tell us a little bit about uh, about the book. Yeah. So the book has been an interesting adventure. Uh, I started writing it about a year and a half ago when I used to live in Indiana. And, and it was largely about um, the idea that we prioritize our own comfort rather than doing hard things that bring us life as men. And I think that that premise that that still holds true. Um, but <laughs> the guy that I was writing to originally was like the guy I was seven or eight years ago in a, in a corporate job, not super happy with how he was showing up in life and generally not an adventurous person. Um, and not to disparage anyone who is listening who identifies with that. But I don't want to hang out with them very much. <laughs> so back to your point of the, you know, we're the average of the five people we spend the most time around. Like, I want to spend time around guys like you and John Eldridge and Morgan Snyder and 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 uh, my buddy Steve and um you know uh and Joe and Dave and those guys. Guys who are doing things, guys who are who are risking, yeah. who are you know in the arena, so to speak. So uh, the publisher that I'm working with, Epic Author, has been fantastic and said, "Okay, great, you got this book that's 80 percent done. You are not writing anymore until you have proved that you can make an impact with your message by uh, what they call the adult scorecard, which is or the adult report card, which is making money." Yeah. Um, so now I am on a, a tour of interviews and discovery and being a student of the people that I really want to be around and serve Right. of what do they want in life that they don't have and what's in the way of them getting it and finding ways where the, the message that I live and have lived and the miles I've traveled can be helpful to help them get to where they want to go. Right. So I'm finding things like um, really awesome um, business owner who's going through some transition and needing some clarity and some really effective planning tools that I've used in the SEAL team leaders for a while. Go, awesome. You have such a great mission and I've been following you on YouTube for a while and loving what you're doing. Would you like some help with that? Yeah. And sometimes I get an answer of yes. Sometimes I don't like that's, that's the adventure. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know what the final book is going to look like anymore. <laughs> it's, not, it's not what I was originally writing. Um, but what I what I do hope is that it will inspire um, it, it will inspire people to actually risk and to get outside more. Yeah, and to do real things with real people in the real world to learn how to use tools and to learn how to make things and to learn how to care for people well and care for themselves well. Um, and having not had enough lived experience in some of those areas, the especially caring for myself well part, um, it may be a little bit before I actually write that book. Um, so all that being said, I am actively um, interviewing people and so if you are listening and going i'm doing some pretty cool stuff like i like i like to make things i've got a business i'm i'm risking um uh, maybe you're a counselor maybe you're a chiropractor maybe you're a welder maybe you uh 3d print things maybe you paint maybe you write or or sing songs or you're a pastor you're 
in motion in adventurous pursuits, and you find yourself overwhelmed by that, or that it is very lonely. That's the kind of people that I want to help. Yeah. What I am good at is putting a team together around a compelling mission. Very cool, man. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to whatever the book is. <laughs> at whatever point. Yeah, I wish I had it like I've got some fun working titles for it. Like yeah. the, the original title was called Get to Breakfast. It was all about like that uh that idea that came uh from the experience in the first uh Correct Tough that I did of like I just gotta get to the biscuits and gravy. Yeah. That's the sus you know, and so it was about you know spiritual sustenance through through persevering, the whole Romans five thing. Um so working title for the second book is Earn Your Flannel. Uh, you know, the the fashion statement doesn't make the man, but if you are doing things that require a warm piece of clothing that looks as good out in the timber as it does in the boardroom, you have earned your flannel. Uh, another one uh, that I'm trying on is, is Hello Trouble. I don't know if you're familiar with that Gerber ad, but uh, man, it's good. Gerber knives, not baby food. Right. Um, but there's a great, great ad that uh, that Morgan Snyder shares with with his community a lot. Um, it, I'm going to send send you a link to it. It's so good. Three minutes, well worth your time. Um, and it is a really interesting picture of what it. What we were talking about, that that true masculinity, what it means to be prepared for trouble and not just to sit back and wait for it, but to actively seek it. Awesome. I love it. So coming coming soon to a, a, a web address near you, hellotrouble.com. I need to buy that domain and put something <laughs> there. Um, <laughs> but yeah. So for the for the time being, we still got anthem of the adventurer.com and, and Instagram under that name, all that, all that jazz. But I I, I feel a rebrand in the wind. <laughs> gotcha. Well, we'll we'll be watching for it, looking for it for sure. Listeners who want to maybe have that conversation with you and maybe want to talk about kind of what's what's holding back the adventure, what some of those challenges are, or keep up with the book. Um, where where's the where's the best place to do that? Yeah, the two the two places I post uh, about things the most uh, uh instagram at anthem of the adventurer uh or, or linkedin as well on, uh, just under my name dan zaner c-e-h-n-e-r um and uh, yeah feel free to shoot me a message i uh, would love to, to have a chat right on and we'll uh we'll throw links to that in the uh, show notes and all that good podcasty stuff as well well as, as expected uh once again emily mccarthy was right Great call. It's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure having you on, man. This is right up the alley of uh, of what we're about here at the Solid 7 Podcast and really appreciate you taking the time and reaching out. And uh, full disclosure, man, before we even got to this point, like after our first conversation, Dan's throwing me introductions like, hey, you ought to talk to this guy from the Solid 7 Podcast. And uh, boy, is there some cool stuff coming already uh, from, from that. So, uh, excited about that and appreciate that. And, uh, really appreciate your yeah. time. The, the work you're doing, the message you're getting out there. Uh, it's just awesome, man. 
Right on, brother. Thank you. Good to, good to be here. Thanks thanks for the time. Well, listeners, we, of course, appreciate and love you, too. If you haven't uh, ever or already, stop by the website, solid7podcast.com, solid7podcast.com, where uh, you can always find links to the latest episodes like the one you have just listened to here. Something new there on the website is a merch link. I just built that today, uh, Dan, and uh, there's some T-shirts and some hoodies on there. Uh, great way to support the podcast. So uh, check out the merch, um, our affiliate programs with GoRuck and Origin and Jocko Fuel and uh, Tuttle Twins. All that stuff's right there on the website. Links to the social media. Um, you can buy us a Jocko Go. Always a fun one. Um, and uh, support some good causes. All that stuff right on the website. Uh, but the best thing uh, that you can do for us is whatever app you're on right now, if you haven't already, click like, click subscribe. Give us a little thumbs up, a little five-star rating maybe even a review, all that stuff helps the tell the evil, evil algorithms to tell other people about us and send them our way. And with that, Dan, appreciate you, man. Uh, we'll definitely have to do this again. Listeners, we appreciate you. And uh, until next week, we're out. The Solid 7 Podcast is fueled by Jocko Go. Engineered for anyone who wants to get after it in life, pre-meeting, pre-testing, pre-negotiation, or pre-mission. If you're looking for an extra cognitive or physical edge, Jocko Go is your force multiplier. With 95 milligrams of caffeine and zero sugar, the keto-friendly Jocko Go will give you a physical and cognitive boost without the crash that you experience with average energy drinks. Visit JockoFuel.com today, and you can use our promo code SOLID7, that's S-O-L-I-D-7, to get 10% off your order Get on the path and get after it. Oh, and because lawyers exist, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. (laughs) 